very much, Gwen, for being uh, part of this podcast uh, for the fourth episode. It's already from Suave Invites. Um, yeah, like I told you before, it's a podcast that helps people who are kind of beginning their journey in the music industry understand the music industry and, well, you understand quite an important part of the music industry. Fair bit, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain a little bit like who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. So I'm Gwen Klemlumink and I'm an entertainment business lawyer and that quite comprehensive, um, specialised in the music industry. So I help artists with their deals, publishing master rights, neighbouring rights. Uh, but I also tend to help publishing agencies or the labels who don't have their own legal um, Actually, anyone who acquires some help, um, yeah, 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 basically, yeah. And what what are the clients that you usually work with? Is it people that are also starting their their journey as a musician, or is it also more? Oh, it could be yeah. anything. It could be anything. So, we help some very very big artists, so DJs, and sometimes they have their own labels, so they need some legal help for the labels. Um, But I also help some very yeah beginning artists who just came uh, came from university, followed some education, and now want to become a professional in this industry. Mm. Um, so these are basically performing artists, performing artists. But we also help um, the musicians behind these performing artists. So that would be the, the writers and the composers. So they they've got less familiar faces, but they are. Ex- They are well. They're the voice. They are the sounds behind the artists, and um, it's absolutely lo- lovely working for them. It's a dip, uh, quite a different kind of person because a performing artist is someone who aspires performing and being on stage. And the people who like to compose and write, they are a lot of times more introvert, and they really like to create something they are very good at playing certain instruments so um it is it's a big difference uh, between all of these clients basically yeah 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 and that's maybe direct kind of a, a deep question um you mentioned you know of course there's a lot of people involved in the music industry that do it for the art basically and do it for the creativity and Um, they're not here for kind of the business side of things maybe um, of course it's it's part of it does that make it difficult you know kind of being on the business side of the music industry and then working with people who really do what they love and do it for the art itself uh, well that that can be difficult indeed um, especially when it comes to negotiating contracts that these also performing artists or the one who create the music And they want to make sure that there's a good atmosphere between all of the parties. So we don't want to make any fuss. We don't want to create any problems whatsoever. Um, we want to make sure we remain friends. And sometimes you need to raise your voice a little bit in order to receive a fair deal or to receive some fair terms. And they, a lot of artists find that very difficult. And that's normal. So. What happens a lot of times is that the manager or the legal um, make sure that they they 
do the conversation. They make sure that they negotiate the deal terms. Sometimes I would explain to my clients um, the good cop versus bad cop scenario that let me do the dirty work for you so you remain an artist. And when, for instance, when someone would book you or want to work to collaborate with you, that person must have um, a good feeling like you're super fun to be working with and not difficult to be working with and therefore there needs to be a fair line between creativity and business yeah that's nice yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, field and, and we uh, briefly before starting recording this podcast we were speaking about that it's often also difficult for artists just to get into it you know or musicians in general um, what do you think are kind of wh- what's the dif- difficult part of you know understanding music rights? I think the difficulty is what the concept of what an artist is. So if you want to become a performing artist, it's so much more than creating your music and performing. That's probably twenty percent of what it takes to be an artist. Uh, but what we see when we look at very successful uh, successful artists, look at, for instance, a David Guetta, he knows that his craftsmanship is so much more. So it's also about understanding the rights, the fundamentals of your income. Because if you don't know where these income streams derive from, then how on earth are you going to make a living from music? So you need to understand your business in order to, in order to make a living. Um, and that's what I said, it's so much more than making music. And you need to figure that out as an artist. Do I aspire that kind of, that kind of life? Do I aspire um, uh, working on my finances? Do I aspire uh, getting to know a little bit more about the legal part of the industry? And don't get me wrong, you don't need to know everything, not at all. But you need to know the fundamentals of this music industry because the people who are offering you deals, the record deals or the publishing deals, these people, they know exactly how it works and they know exactly what rights and terms they're talking about. And if you don't know, if you've not educated yourself about the income streams, then it's going to be a very difficult conversation. Then you would sign a deal without actually knowing what you are transferring or what you are, uh, for how long, what it, what, what, um, how far it will extend. Um, and, and therefore I would say, I know that legal is a bit boring. I understand. Uh, but also, if you um, educate mm-hmm. yourself a little bit and... Uh, it, it, it becomes vivid. In the beginning, it's always super boring. Um, but then you know what you are signing and you know what rights you are transferring, which is super important, again, if you want to make a living out of this industry. Yeah, makes sense. And what are some of the fundamental rights you feel you really should look into before you get into these kind of agreement talks with publishers or labels? Yeah, so basically there are three massive income streams in the music industry. First of all, it's income deriving from your master exploitation and normally 
you could sign your track to a label or you could do it yourself and some income derived from a distributor but let's just focus on a label uh, then you would receive royalties so that's the first income stream now if you have made this track yourself and you're a composer or a writer so you've created this copyright this could also be uh, income deriving from copyright and you could as as assign your copyright to a publishing agency so these are two completely different income streams and now the neighboring rights uh, are performing performing royalties so whenever someone is playing on the radio television your tune and you have performed on this track guitar voice bass whatever income would derive out of this neighboring rights so which is also something completely different so now you you are aware of these income streams you need to understand which public performing societies belong to this kind of rights so copyright in the Netherlands this is related to Buma Stemra and then the master income um, that would be the label of course and then the neighboring rights in the Netherlands that would be SENA mm -hmm. and you should have memberships over there because these public right organizations would uh, collect your income you can't do it yourself and that's that's a very long story why you can't do it yourself. Recording, uh, regarding uh, Bumastera, I, uh, I think five, six years ago, I wrote a thesis about it. Um, so if someone is interested in this, in this <laughs> thesis, just let me know, <laughs> write down in the comments. Um, but basically, what it means is it's impossible for you, as uh, a composer or writer, to go to all of the clubs, all of the societies, all of the radio show, all of the the net digital service providers to ask for, hey, have you played my tune? And yes, could you please uh, reimburse me for that? So that's why these public right organizations do that for you. So you know what the income streams are, you know which right organization are um, kind of attached to it. Um, and I think that's where the knowledge starts. Okay. And and what if you um, are a producer and you make music which streams very well, for instance, on Spotify, but you don't have um, the ambition to go on stage or DJ or perform your music? Do you would you still recommend also starting with the scene up part and with the neighboring rights and that kind of stuff, or do you think it's also fine if you dive into your royalties then first and then leave out? the other part when you are actually starting to perform maybe your music yes understand so maybe a miscomprehension of performing rights is that you actually have to perform it's about the performing of your track so the performance could be on television without you actually performing it but it's about the track performing itself television radio streaming so yes please do subscribe yourself to this kind of organization because it's your money, it's free money, um, and you should collect it. And I know from um, from Suave, of course, the label that we uh, collect some um, royalties sometimes to, for example, do marketing or promotion, like additional. Um, we collect the royalties and the royalty part that's actually going to the artist. They pay for it, so we collect that part of the royalty. 
Um, so there is obviously sometimes costs being deducted from the royalties that you get. Um, what is what are things that we really should look into if you're a musician into this kind of thing? Because you mentioned already in the social media post that we did, like, you know, cut the costs. You have yeah. to um, really know what kind of costs are being deducted from your royalties. Yeah. How, how, should we look, how should we look at that? Okay, so now we're, we're looking at the master rights. And as an artist, when you assign your track to a label, you are to receive uh, a master transfer or a license contract in which you will transfer your rights. Okay. So a division of that contract would be, how am I supposed to be reimbursed as an artist? And that would be through royalties. Now, um, it's common so when a label um, is to release a track, certain costs have to be made. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. And these costs shall be partly, most of the time, uh, deducted from the artist's royalty. Also fair shot. But you need to be aware as an artist, okay, what kind of costs. So, for instance... um, few months ago I received a contract from a producer and he said okay um, I, uh, I shall receive a royalty for my for my labor uh, but first many costs are being deducted and these costs were super vague so what it what it at the end of the day what it meant in that specific contract is that the artist who would uh, perform the track um, would record a video and then all of the costs which were being made to create that video would be deducted but that would also be her new new set of nails her hair extensions her makeup and that, that's just ridiculous that a producer should share these costs so uh, that's, an, that's an example of do you know about what kind of cost we're talking about, limit down these costs. So artwork, normal. Perhaps remix costs, completely normal. Video costs could be, but then just cut it down to the actual video. And if you want to go to a hairdresser as a performing artist, that's fine, but uh, pay it yourself, please. Um, so cut it down and, and make sure you actually know what these costs are being deducted from. So it's also check out what the source of the royalty payment is. If there's in, in this contract it states you are to receive 20% royalty. So like, oh no, nice, no, 20%, that's a good rate. But from what source? Because it's huge difference if 20% is deriving from the actual exploitation from the source, or whether it's deriving from the artist share, so 20% of, let's say, 30% artist share after certain costs have been deducted. It's quite a difference. So um, normally these contracts would state 20% of at source, 20% BPD, 20% uh, net received. And after this, this kind of wording, let's say net received, there should be a definition because there's not a clear legal term about what these definitions are. So make sure you put down in the contract what it exactly is. Um, I work, most often I work quite internationally. So 
what net receipt would mean in the Netherlands is something completely different what it means in the States. Um, and therefore, there's always a big kind of a, a difference in understanding uh, of what the definition is. So write it down. I still do it too, always. Any contract whatsoever, write it down. Uh, and once you know what the source is and what the recoupable costs are, you could make a brief as estimation of what the income would be. Yeah, interesting. And I also think it's interesting to um, hear from your perspective on like the international part, because like you mentioned, you know, here, uh, Buma Semra collects your neighboring rights income, if I got that correct. No, the, 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 the copyright. The copyright, yeah. yeah, the copyrights. I, under I already get confused. Yeah, it's it's very, it's very difficult. difficult. Yes. But, um, you know, what if, for example, you are an artist, you are um, a Dutch artist, Dutch producer, and you perform in Germany? Yeah. Like, does the same organization then still collect your copyrights there, or how does that work? All right, so that's a really good question. So you assign yourself to one public right organization, and if you're Dutch, you do that, Buma Stemra, and it's actually a fairly good organization. Buma Stemra is well developed, and they're very good when it comes to fingerprinting system. So uh, whenever a festival, or even in, in just a club, is playing your track, it recognizes within a few seconds that it's your track, and it gets scanned, and Buma Stemra gets this info, and then you will get paid. So they're super well developed. So it's, it's a good company to be part of. Uh, but all of the countries have their own Buma Stemra. So in Germany, it would be Gemma. And what happened, Gemma would collect this kind of income, and Gemma would pay out your share to Buma Stemra. And likewise, that would happen too. Um, so if in the Netherlands uh, a track of a German uh, copywriter would be played, then Buma Stemra would pay it out to Gemma too. So that's very well established. It works perfect. Of course, sometimes something goes wrong. That just that happens, but most of the time, the system uh, works quite well, and it works internationally. So each uh, country which has this public right organization works like that. Also in the uh, United States, um, the only difference is, is that most countries, and especially in Europe, these, these public rights organizations have a monopoly. They're the only society who's, who's able to collect it, which makes it way more fast and very easy, and you've got government watching over these uh, collective societies. So that, that basically works. In the States, it's a little, little bit different because that's an open market. It's a federal market. So there are multiple different organizations who are able to collect so you've got an ASCAP you've got a BMI you've got so if you aspire to become a public right organization go to the United States <laughs> open up your own agency so that works a little bit different differently uh, but the countries who do have this kind of societies they work on a uh, on the same base it's few countries that don't have it uh, Egypt for example, also I think some other countries too, but I'm not really, uh, yeah. I don't have it on top of my mind. No, That basically just means that whenever your trick is 
becoming a hit in Egypt, for instance, yeah. you basically just can yeah, so be very proud and that's it. <laughs> yeah, so if you've written a track and that's become massive in Egypt, then yeah, you could waive uh, your income. It, it doesn't work like that over there. It, and uh, probably some African countries here and there, but uh, some of them it's well arranged too. Yeah. So just d don't focus on the Egypt, on the market of Egypt, then just mm. go to Europe and you'll find it. And does it also mean that, um, for example, a club or uh, event organization, they have to record, for example, the sets and then they have to send it to Buma? Or how, do they, how does this fingerprinting system, for example, works? So it's a device. And this, this fingerprinting system is, is got an intelligence. So it would recognize by the wave, by the frequencies, what kind of tune it is. And then they would, it would be sent to Buma Sturma. How it exactly works, I, I'm not familiar with it, I just know the fundamentals. Um, so that's one way how it works. The other way is that if a DJ would be playing its set at the huge festival, he would send his set list to Boomer Stemra. Oh and you want to do that because it, you will receive income out of that. So it's, it's a two-way road. Yeah. yeah, interesting, interesting. Do you think there is also um, other main difference between you know, one country and another that you have to kind of keep in mind if you're um, a musician, if, it, for example, if you're uh, you're just a producer, you're not necessarily, you know, your track's not performed, but maybe streaming-wise, um, yeah. your song can also have, like, for example, gold record in another country than where you're from. Oh, yeah. What kind of rights are involved with this um, situation? So, yes, um, so in, in Europe we've got it's called European harmonized legislation so when it comes to the copyright we're kind of on the same page but any country and any organization is free to um, uh, arrange a certain kind of of, uh, of income or certain kind of numbers so Bima Stemra for instance when it comes to the copyright um, they work with their own numbers what um, exploitation of copyright in the Netherlands, what the, the, the minimum of income should be when it comes to the reimbursement of writers and composers. That would be the, the, the very familiar 33.333% that, 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 um, that only that share, sorry, that, that's the maximum share which should be paid to a publisher then you can work with a kickback but that's a different kind of story but when you go abroad this would be a 50-50 base so this this derives from the public right organization itself then when when it comes to streaming so um, streaming on let's say Spotify then yes a, a stream in Europe or in the Netherlands um, one stream is about 0.0035 cents but then in Latin America for example it would be late, way less so there is a difference between income, between numbers whatever but it's not really something you can negotiate no. um, it's, it's got everything to do with a particular organization and in, in this case the, the, the income that Spotify would attach to a stream in a cer certain uh, landscape. Yeah. yeah, 
And what happens if you um, are producing a song with someone from another country? Do we also have to keep that in mind when you set up like the, um, um, the exclusive contract or the contract for that specific song? So um, when referring to a master contract or a license, so what a label should offer, no, it would be the exact same contract and the same, because the, the label is the, the company who would um, um, offer you a certain royalty percentage, and that doesn't really matter. And through the label, through their distributor, the, the songs gets uh, exploited, and that would be through a certain channel. So that, that wouldn't make a difference. But if I were to make a track with um, someone outside of the Netherlands and uh, we will talk about the copyright then yes um, because Boomer Stemra make sure is 33 66% and then abroad it would be 50 50 so yes that would be a little bit different uh, for these other producers or songwriters or whatever but that's got everything to do with the deal which they have with their publishing entity as well yeah so Yes, it could. It, it's personal. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And I think there is also, and this is just an assumption from my side because I'm not a musician in any way. I'm not a producer. I'm also not a songwriter. I'm not, you know, performing an instrument live. Um, are there a big difference between those parties involved in making a song? Because we've been talking about producers and DJs a bit, but what if you are a top liner, for instance, and you're um, vocals being used in a song. Yeah. What are the things? Are there like big different things that you have to kind of keep in mind um, in um, deciding if a contract is correct for you or not? So, if we're just talking about a top line is being used, so we're talking about uh, your own copyright because clearly you have written it yourself or maybe composed it yourself, and the top line is also embodied probably on a vocal recording. So you're talking about master rights too. Um, so if you were to receive a deal from a label it would only consist of master rights so it would only consist of vocal itself and the copyright has got nothing to do with the label exploitation so that's being arranged separately um, completely different deals um, there is a huge development that has been taking place the last few years is that so a lot of streaming, a lot of exploitation of these master rights, they go by Spotify or by, dig by digital uh, service providers, these uh, Apple Music. And these kind of societies, they pay very, very little for the use of the copyright. They pay sufficiently, well, sufficiently when it comes to the exploitation of the master right, but not the copyright. So if you have written a certain song, not you you you're not recorded on the master just written it then you get very reimbursed very just a, a very brief fraction of what the master writes or just the expectation of the master would be and I was just it, the difference was way too big so development which has have been ta has been taking place the last few years is that these writers would say okay you know what you can use my copyright but I want to be fairly reimbursed you so either way I want to receive a fee for the use of my copyright either way I want to receive a few master points so I want to be reimbursed through royalties too or I want it both 
and 10 years ago that would never happened but you see there's a development in the music industry too about how tracks gets get exploited it's not just by lp or cd anymore it's digital now that the industry changes and therefore also the people who want to be reimbursed for their um, performance yeah I think that's that's very. It, it, should, it could be um, a, a difficult subject. I think also to get into because, you know, you don't just make up a right or a law. Or it, there's a lot of um, thought behind it. You know, a lot of I guess examples of yeah. things that are not going right. While technology is super fast, you know, developments and stuff like that. How do you see that? You know, progressing. Do you feel like the music rights are able to kind of keep up with this very fast technological development? Yeah. So, first of all, music rights, the difficulty about this subject is that we've got a copyright law, but that's just, the copyright law uh, applies to books, paintings, music, theatre shows, software, whatever, so it's quite broad. There's no such thing as actually music rights. So we've got the basics, but then how it really works in normal day, we've just created uh, kind of an idea of a concept of what reasonable reimbursement should be when it comes to royalties, what just the normal contracting would be. So, um, and there's also not a lot of jurisprudence. So jurisprudence is when actually when you go to a judge and you say we've got a problem here it's not clear it doesn't derive from the law so please tell us what's going on here and then new legislation would derive from that it's not necessarily um, uh, written down in the book of law and the copyright act but it's just it's called jurisprudence so l- law law yeah like like a judge like a judge would create a certain law that's basically it but also the music industry doesn't have a lot of jurisprudence. So that's that's making the concept sometimes a little bit difficult of what what is truth. So in the in just this industry we've kind of created our common law of what we think is reasonable. And now with the development of new technology, this common law sometimes changes a bit. As just the example which I've just been given about the writers and the composers who aim for master royalties. That's a development of this common law. Um, a huge development right now is AI. Uh, it's, it's, it's lovely, but it also creates some legal difficulties. Uh, I'm not the, the biggest, uh, I don't know a lot of AI, I just I kind of know the basic. But what happens if when you go to a platform, GTP for instance, or everything that it, it's got, um, you ask AI to create a track or image or artwork, and this this software, or this AI, this bot, like let's say it's it's a bot, search through the internet and collect something new okay so we've got a new let's say artwork we've got a new image but it's it's collected by already existing copyright or existing ideas which have been captivated by someone 
how does that work? Have we created something new or do we need to make sure we get those existing rights cleared? And there is no legislation about it. We, the copyright does, doesn't, uh, Copyright Act doesn't offer any clarification. So what we do is just basically think, yeah, we, we, we use our common knowledge and we try to be as open and uh, to communicate as best as we can, but there's just some things we don't know. So I, I got a lot of questions from my clients who said, with the question, we used AI, can we just use it? Can we exploit this? And then I would say, just don't do it, because we don't know what the image is deriving from. We don't know if there's any rights attached to it, so be very careful with it. Um, and also, I think that there was a huge wave i think a year ago were the, the nft development mm -hmm. and there were a lot heaps of questions about the nft business and how it works and where it derives from and right now we don't get that many questions anymore i've got the idea that yeah. th that it's not that uh, popular anymore uh but again then you there is no legislation so you just need to use your common knowledge and sometimes that leads to miscomprehension and sometimes uh, you make mistakes because clearly clearly you've been using someone else's rights but you can only find out by acting on it. Yeah. And who makes then um, who makes the new law or who is like responsible for that for something like AI, you know, maybe in the future when this develops even further, you know, we have the need for yeah. um, certain rules and regulations, I would say. Who's responsible for that? Europe. Yeah, the, the, one who are, the ones who are making our legislation. So that would be our government, the Dutch government. But since copyright is European harmonized law, it, it derives from Brussels, so the, the heart of the European uh, legislation. That would be the starting point. And sometimes it, it does work if they, they've, they've um, they feel like this industry really needs some clarification then we need to work on that but there's just so many subjects that require attention when it comes to clear legislation it's just too much for them so it, it, it would help but now we just have to use our brains and then then what I what I just said, if a client would come up to me and said, "Yeah, AI created this bot, created a new artwork for me," I would say, "Just don't use it," mm. even though it's a collection of all kind of ideas already existing on the internet. Just don't do it because I don't know. Yeah. Do you think a label, for instance, or um, a publishing agency, or yeah, I guess if we talk about artworks uh, and the music itself, a label. Um, do does labels need to ha or do labels need to take responsibility more in that sense? You know, maybe just also guiding uh, young or beginning artists to, you know, maybe just be careful for this kind of stuff. Oh, definitely, yes. So uh, most of the times, label would provide for artwork, and as far as I know, a lot of labels work together with a company which provides this artwork and they've got a deal with them um, pay a certain amount of money they create the artwork sometimes they've got in-house people make this artwork create it um, and and sometimes yeah I haven't really spoken to a label which actually uses AI 
a question which I did receive last week was from one of my clients, which is a label, and they said, okay, these the artists who want to uh, release a track on our label, they have created a video by AI. Can we use it? And I told the label, just don't do it. You know, if they want to use that video, use it on your own platform, fine. Use it with your own name, exploit it yourself, but make sure as a label you exonerate yourself from that AI work. Uh, because it might lead to an infringement. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about an example. Um, David Geta, I think he also, but he didn't. And that's, I think, I'm kind of answering the, my question uh, already. But uh, I think it was a, a big festival. I don't remember which one, but he actually played a track with Eminem. Yeah. And it was AI generated. Yeah. And do you think this is also the reason, for example, why he didn't release it or he didn't plan to do it I yet? Think so. I think so. So what I would think is, I'm not sure if it was an already existing copyright, so that he used Eminem's vocal and he used, I think, new wording or new lyrics. I think so, I'm not sure. But then he used Eminem's voice. So that's, that would be neighboring right, because you're using his performing rights of Eminem basically but what I what I would do if I were to be Eminem's legal I would write a letter to the legals of uh, David Guetta and I would say listen up uh, you're using my client's voice obviously because he's very popular and you want to make sure you generate popularity you generate streams by it you generate income from it so you're not using it for education purposes or for art purposes, but you're using it to generate views. Uh, and either way, we receive reasonable reimbursement for that, or just don't use it. And the next time, if you want to use my client's voice, even though it's I, I um, uh, it's generated by a bot, it's still my client's voice, and you are uh, exploiting it as if it's Eminem's voice, because there's clearly a lot of uh, popularity when it comes to Eminem and the whole branding, I want to, I want to make sure we priorly um, agree to this and not just knowing it afterwards. So, what, so in, in this case, since there's no legislation about it, it would be great if this would be uh, being judged by a federal court so we know what is prohibited and what is not uh, but I think I know uh, David Geddes legal, we, sometimes he's my counterparty too and he's got a really good team surrounding him I just think that they were like let's not go that far because it's either way it's going to be very expensive no, it's just going to be very expensive. Point mm. Full stop. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. There's of course tons of like examples that we could, we could speak of, and um, yeah, I think it's very interesting to just see it develop even further. Yeah. Are there any other developments, uh, maybe outside of AI in technology or whatever, that you feel could have a very big impact on music rights or? I don't, I, um, I don't know. 
uh, about these technical developments. But what I find very interesting, and maybe this will um, be used in the music industry too, um, is that so? So right now we are in, in an evolution of electronic and technical um, development, but there's also uh, there's always a counterpart. You know, when something is very technical, so it's a, we go back to nature. And what I've seen, I, I absolutely loved it, is that you're able to use a certain device to attach uh, electrons to, let's say, trees or leaves or mushrooms. And this device could capture the frequency of that tree, leaf, and that it will turn into uh, a certain sound. And you can use that uh, in the, your music too. Um, just look it up online. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I heard about it. Yeah. Oh, I it's heard about so it. interesting. And the yeah. music is unbelievable, beautiful. What they capture, actually, the frequency, it's ridiculous. So I'm very curious if someone is to use that in his music and would claim, this is my sound, the sound that a mushroom is making. Can you can you copyright that actually? Because it's not okay. So no, it's not your creation. No. I'm curious about that. What's going to happen over there? Yeah, 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 for sure. And is it like if you alter it enough, if is then the the copyright is yours? Like you're using yeah. certain parts, but you alter it into a creation that's different. Yes. So I think. If you want to claim copyright, you need to have this um, creative, intellectual adding to it. You need to do something with a sound which belongs to nature. Because when you're copywriting it, you're you're monopolize. Is that a word? You make you make you you make a monopoly out of it. It's mine. It should belong to me. And that monopoly would extend for quite a while. If you copyright it, it would be valid for at least 70 years after you've passed away. Um, so then you need to make sure that you've actually added your intellectual... Your intellectual thought, yeah. You've, you, need, you, you, have, you need to create something. And just purely capturing it, I don't think that's sufficient. No. Then, okay, so if we're talking about law, but this is going to be very boring, <laughs> then the device which is actually capturing it, that is probably already covered by a patent. So it's not about the device, it's about the intellectual uh, ways which are deriving from it. So yeah, I, I would be very, very interested in this development. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I think this... It's just that that's also, I, I think, a little bit the, um, uh, symbolic to me. Like we started this podcast also with you know, a question about like, how do you, um, you know, just get art and the industry or business, like how can you make it work into something that works well, you know, yeah. and um, makes everybody happy. And I think this is also somewhat the same, you know, something as pure as nature, you yeah. know, producing a sound. You know, we it, it is maybe the law or the copyrights or you know the music rights around it that are going to make that something nice to do. 
yeah. you know, and, and use it in a more business, maybe commercial way, that doesn't matter, but, you know, just, you know, having the rights around it, you know, making it um, a pleasant situation for both parties, if you can call mm -hmm. a mushroom a party. But yeah, yeah I think it's, um, it's super interesting to see how these worlds collide and how, you know, um, yeah, people like you trying to make that uh, work well, you know, for all yeah. parties involved. Yeah, so at the end of the day, copyright is invented to protect you as an author. So if you've mm. created something creative with your intellectual mind, you need to have a certain degree of protection. It's yours. Yeah, brilliant. Because the creation, it okay, so it's embodied on a recording, but the creation itself is just, it's just, it's nothing. You cannot grab it. It's an intellectual development. And for 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 men for hundreds of years uh, our society have found it of great 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 importance to have such developments protected because it brings us further as a society mm. um, and that will I don't see that being changed not at all uh, but then the the the, the um, the center of this protection would be that you actually add something, create something which wasn't there before. And that needs to be captured somehow. And if you manage to do that, create something which has not been there before, that other people need to respect that. And that's why it has become so valuable. Because if someone else wants to use it, they need to clear it. They need to have your consent, 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 I must say. To, to use it, and sometimes you need to be reimbursed for it, uh, that's the underlying kind of vision about this whole copyright-relating mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. I think we um, are going to wrap it up, but I wanted to um, end this podcast with maybe your top three tips for you know beginner musicians um, who are just going to deal with music rights now. What would you give them as the three tips? So as a beginning artist, uh, my three tips. First of all, what I would always say is, please educate yourself. Please start to read, start to listen to podcasts. Um, Google it. If you don't know certain terms in the industry, Google it. Educate yourself. It's so important. Because once, once you start to know a little bit more about the industry, it becomes vivid. And you know a little bit more what you have created too and why it is of so much value. Yeah. So that's the first thing. I know it's sometimes a bit boring, but it's super necessary. Two, um, I would say you don't have to know everything. The most successful artists I've seen around me, they have, um, they made sure they've got a team around them with different kinds of values. So one, he's got a manager, you've got a legal, you've got someone who's good at finance, you've got a booker, you've got this. So you don't have to know everything and know, know that that's, that's fine. Know what you don't know and outsource it. That would be two. Three, the beginning in the early stage of your career 
I'm aware you don't have a lot of money, and that's fine. Uh, but sometimes you need to spend some money on things which are super necessary. So, for instance, if you're going to sign a publishing deal, and you're going to s sign away your rights for 20 years, make sure you do hire a legal because this has a huge impact on the rest of your career. And so, if it's just one track at a record label, the impact is not super huge if it's a lousy deal. So, okay, you don't hire a legal for that if, if, if you don't have the money to do that. But when it comes to bigger deals, bigger artist deals, album deals, two album deals, EPs, whatever, hire someone with the knowledge. And yes, maybe it's going to, to be a few hundred dollars, but then you know that... Um, it's been arranged well for the rest of your career too. That's that's mm -hmm. what I would say. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Yeah.